Hey there, it's Debbie, and welcome to Playback Friday. Every Friday, I'll re-release one of my favorite conversations from the archives. Unless you're a longtime listener of the show, there's a good chance you haven't heard this one yet. And even if you have, you just may get something completely different listening to it this time around. It's really great for our kids to see us in the world and to know that we make mistakes too. And, oh, I, I responded too hastily to that email and now I have a lot of cleanup to do in that relationship or that work situation. And I, I wish I'd taken the time to think it through or even talk in person instead. So I think letting them know that we've been there and also letting them know that it is genuinely challenging that we recognize. I mean, that's one of the great things about coaching is we're not saying, oh, this is so easy. Why don't you get it? We're saying, yeah, this is really challenging and, you know, baby steps. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reaver, and today's episode is a must listen to if your child uses technology and screens of any sort. So yeah, pretty much everyone. My guest this week is Deborah Heitner, an expert on young people's relationship with digital media and technology. Devorah is the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World, and founder of Raising Digital Natives. And her mission is to cultivate a culture of empathy and social-emotional literacy. Devorah's work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and Education Week. And she also did a fascinating TEDx talk a few years back called The Challenges of Raising a Digital Native, which I highly recommend you check out. I will link to that TEDx talk in the show notes. Today, Deborah and I talk about kids' relationship with screens, everything from the specific challenges related to screens and technology for differently wired kids to how we as parents can start being effective mentors for our child when it comes to helping them develop healthy screen habits. I asked Devorah the big questions I hear all the time from parents, like, how much time is too much time on screens? Does the type of activity our kids do on screen make a difference when it comes to setting limits? And much more. I hope you get a lot out of this interview. And by the way, in each episode, at some point, I refer to something called the show notes. And I realize that not everybody knows what I mean when I say this. So essentially, for every episode of the podcast, I create a post on the Tilt Parenting website for that episode. And on that page, you can listen to the episode itself. You can read a short description of the episode and read a brief biography of that week's guest. And I also include a bulleted list of the key takeaways for each episode. And then I list out all the resources that came up during the conversation. You know, sometimes our guests share their favorite books or websites or other thought leaders on this subject. So I capture all of those. So if listeners want to dig deeper and explore those resources, they don't have to go tracking them down. And they can just link directly from that page. So if you ever want to access the show notes for a particular episode, there's two ways to do this. One is to go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast. And on that page, you'll see a listing of every episode I've done to date, all 127 of them. And then you just click on the episode you're interested in, and it will take you to the show notes page. The other way is to listen to my outro at the conclusion of the interview each week. I will tell you what episode number it is and give you the direct URL. So for instance, this week is episode 127. So the direct link is tiltparenting.com slash session 127. So you get the point. Anyway, I just wanted to do a quick PSA on this because I wanted to make sure you were aware of this extra content that you can find online for every episode. And before I get to the conversation, if you get value out of this podcast, please consider supporting it by making a small monthly contribution to help me cover the costs of production. There's an easy way to do this through an online platform called Patreon. So I have a Patreon campaign for Tilt Parenting and this podcast, and it's funded by listeners like you. And that helps me pay my editor, Donna, who takes the recorded interviews I do, intros and outros like this, cleans them up, edits them, tags them for iTunes, and uploads them onto my sound account. I also have someone doing transcriptions for the episode, and so that is helping me cover the cost of that. So outsourcing those jobs saves me hours of time each week, and it allows me to focus on 
all the other pieces of keeping Tilt going and supporting this community, like the new Tilt Together groups we're starting to get going and other initiatives that I'm trying to work on developing. So if you want to support those efforts, you can go to patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you can also find a link on the Tilt Parenting website on any of the show notes pages, and it's super easy to sign up. So thank you so much for considering. And now here is my conversation with Devorah. Hi, Devorah. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. I'm really happy to be having this conversation about something that is just such a relevant part of our world for all parents, but I know this is something that comes up a lot in Facebook groups that I'm in and just parents really wanting more information and tools and just how to frame our thinking around screen time. And you kind of wrote the book on it. So I'm really excited to talk with you about this today. Thank you. So your book, I just want to start with the title of your book, which is Screen Wise, which I just love that title. And I just would love to hear from you what screen wise means, you know, what is loaded into that term? Well, we want to think about wisdom in the sense of our lived experience. And a lot of parents discount their wisdom of lived experience when they go to try to mentor their digital natives because they think, well, I didn't grow up with Fortnite or Instagram or Snapchat. So therefore, what do I know? And and they're often discounting a lot of lived experience and a lot of good ideas that would be really helpful to their kids. They just need to get creative and think about that wisdom from a different venue. We all know what it's like to be left out of something. We all know what it's like to get distracted and blow a deadline or have to stay up later than we want to. So it's really important that we acknowledge that we have wisdom from our lived experience, even though we didn't grow up with a tiny supercomputer in our hands. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I actually would like to even take a step back. I'm curious to know how you came to be even doing this work. And maybe in answering that, you could tell us a little bit about your background and your expertise in all things screen. Sure. So I'm a media scholar. I have a PhD in media technology and society, which believe it or not, is a real thing you can study. (laughs) And my early work in graduate school was about Sesame Street and the anti-racist curriculum of Sesame Street. And then I ended up writing my dissertation and first book about a movement in 1970s television that was really about African-American liberation struggles and television programs that came out of that. But I continue to be interested in children's television. And I taught classes at the university level went in my first five or six years on the tenure track called Kids Media Culture and other classes like that, where I would go with my 20-year-old college students out to places like American Girl, interview families and talk to them about purchasing decisions. We would interview third graders about their media ecology in their homes and who made the decisions and the rules about what they could and couldn't watch. And what I found is my students who were then, this was sort of the tail end of millennials. So I was teaching college until 2012. So my 20 year old students were very concerned about what they heard third graders talking about. And so I thought that was really interesting. So we're seeing this micro split of kids only maybe 10 to 12 years younger than they were with completely different access because they had grown up with dial up, but these kids were starting to grow up with smartphones in the home. They were growing up with social media They had much more access to a lot more content from things like YouTube. And seeing that discrepancy at the same time that I became a parent myself, my son was born in 2009, really opened my eyes to a gaping hole that parents and everyone else was very confused about what this would all mean for young people and especially the proliferation of things like smartphones. What does that actually mean for kids? So I started to research and speak on that topic, and I ended up leaving my university job to just do this full time. Wow. And how long ago did you do your TED Talk, which, by the way, listeners, I recommend checking it out. I thought it was fascinating. When did you do that? Thank you. That was about three or four years ago. It was before the book, definitely. I think it was 2015. Okay. And I can just imagine this is an area where things are constantly changing. Absolutely. I think the core message of that talk, which is empathy is the app and the focus on both how we as parents need to cultivate empathy for our kids' experience of growing up more connected and more public and how we in turn want to cultivate and support 
their empathy for their peers and for others in their digital interactions. I think that message is still very current, but yeah, even I'm sure some of the examples I would use now would be a little bit different. And that's always true. I mean, I, I speak every day on this topic practically, and it's, it's always, it's always a moving target. And that's why I think we, we should focus more on the core experiences our kids have and the skills that they need to be successful rather than specific applications. Right. Yeah, I know. It seems like when something new comes along, like a Snapchat or whatever, then that's like the panic. And that's what I really like about your approach. And I want to get into more in-depthly in terms of taking a step back and looking at giving our kids tools to interact with media in a way that is safe and that they can they can kind of own because we can't be the ones standing over their shoulders all the time when they're moving on and launching into life. Yeah. And especially as parents of kids who are quirky or neurodiverse, we're already thinking about self-regulation. And I think this is an area where in some ways we have a lot in common with parents of neurotypical kids where sitting on them to get them to do what you want isn't the thing that will keep them from playing Fortnite all night in college, right? They actually need to learn self-regulation because there's not going to be someone guiding them forever. Mm -hmm. And so we may have more, a bigger lift sometimes with some of our kids teaching them, teaching them how to self-regulate around these issues. But truly all the parents I meet are finding that tech presents some challenges to their family or their kids. So let's talk about the challenges. I just think listeners are going to relate to many of these. So I'm curious to know what are the broad challenges? You know, you just mentioned self-regulation as being something that really all parents are concerned about. What kind of challenges do you see generally speaking, and then any that are really specific to parents raising differently wired kids? Sure. I mean, relationships can be a challenge for all of us and for all kids growing up today and for adults who manage a lot of our relationships digitally, just figuring out, you know, what are the differences in disclosure versus discretion in social media versus a face-to-face conversation? Uh, what What is the expectation of frequency of contact in a digital relationship? You know, if someone texts me, what's my obligation to text them back right away? Is it different with email? Is it different in different genres of, of social media? You know, is Snapchat different than Facebook? All of these things have a million unspoken rules, and I've written a little bit about the kind of rules that kids come up with in their own communities. If you have a kid who has a hard time figuring out the unspoken social rules in verbal communication, they may do better with digital communication because it, it might there might be a way to be more explicit, or it may be just as challenging. So you know, I think we all know kids who are not great at face-to-face communication, but maybe they're really great at video games. How can we as parents use the video game maybe to help our kids build some face-to-face social skills, whether it's inviting friends over to play the game and insisting that they also unplug for some of the time, or are there other ways that we can use their interests and their skills to bridge into areas of strength? Right. And let's, before we actually hit the record button here, we were talking a little bit about school and, you know, I'm not only am I living abroad, so you know a lot of our listeners are in the U.S. and are immersed in the U.S. school system, but I'm also homeschooling. So talk to me about what is happening today that you're seeing in schools that's presenting challenges as well for parents with atypical kids. Absolutely. So what I'm seeing is that many school districts and independent schools are moving toward one-to-one. Uh, some are deep, you know, pretty far down that road, five to 10 years of tablets in the classroom or kids bringing things like Chromebooks or iPads home with them as well as using them all day at school. And there are many ways that that's going to support a kid with executive function challenges or a kid who has really slow and poor handwriting, for example, where they're going to be able to maybe keyboard more effectively than they could take handwritten notes or they're going to be able to keep a digital calendar or even take pictures of homework on the board. And maybe that's something that was always getting lost when you're dealing predominantly with paper. So that's lovely. On the other hand, you have a distraction that's with kids all day. And we're seeing many neurotypical kids completely derailed by that distraction, especially when it's not used effectively. Like if you have teachers who maybe were handed the iPad at the beginning of the year, this is like the worst case scenario. It doesn't always happen this way. It can be much better than this. But worst case scenario, handed the iPad at the beginning of the year and told, we need to be one-to-one. Here you go. And all your kids have it and you're just supposed to teach with it. And many teachers in that situation are not prepared maybe to use it effectively to teach students to collaborate or use it to have you know, student-driven learning and to sort of be the, the model that ed tech people would say is that the teacher's the lead learner, right? And that everyone's exploring together. Well, 
if you're coming from a completely top-down situation where you're used to just running everything from the front of the room and you're going to continue to run everything from the front of the room and say, give a lecture that's not super engaging and expect the students to listen, but you've also handed them iPads, mm-hmm. well, good luck, <laughs> you know, because I don't think many students are going to be listening right. <laughs> and effectively learning from that. And, and, and there are bigger questions there, right? Is lecturing an effective way of teaching, you know, 21st century kids? Is this the best way to go at all, Right. All these questions are good and worth asking, but the fact is what we're doing is just adding a new tool to a culture that is top-down learning, teaching from the front of the room, lecture, drill and kill, isn't very effective. Giving kids a math app that's a game and they're really excited about it is great, but what about the kid who gets super revved and competitive by the math app and then can't focus on the next task or can't stop playing or, you know, can't handle the, the social interaction when it's driven by competition because that triggers something in them, right? There's just a lot happening in schools that maybe some schools are less prepared for than others. I've seen schools be much more effective, take years to do really excellent professional development, give teachers a lot of power and autonomy about when they use tech and make sure that there's a culture of students knowing to put it away when it's not in use and that it's really put away and off, not just sitting on their desks being potentially distracting. That's really ideal where, you know, the tech is used to support a specific learning objective or a specific mode of collaboration or engagement. And then when it's not in use, it's away. But that's not always what we see. What we see sometimes is, oh, here, everybody, we got a big grant. Here's the Chromebooks. Go for it. And, you know, even if your kid doesn't have ADHD or isn't on the spectrum or doesn't have any other neurological diagnosis, they may be completely distracted. But for kids you know, with different kinds of LDs or, you know, neurological differences who maybe are already struggling to keep it together during the school day and already looking for a way to tune out the noise or do something else, then that Chromebook or that iPad or that laptop could be very, very distracting. It could be a place to escape from school, Mm -hmm. not necessarily to enhance your engagement with what's going on around you. Wow, I'm really feeling overwhelmed listening to this. Because it seems like, what do we do? You know, it it seems like we're in this situation, schools are in this situation. And, you know, professional development is such a big piece of this. And I feel like there's already so much that teachers need support around just in terms of recognizing and supporting differently wired kids in the classroom. And now we have this, this added tool, which probably makes even that work that much harder in many ways. So Right. I mean, it can support differentiation. And that's what people will say. If you go in as a parent to your IEP meeting or in Canada, your SEP, and you know, every country has their lingo for how we talk about if you if you have a team at school, that's working with your child to individuate their path or to support them with additional services. Hopefully, you can then talk to them about the role of tech there. And what they're going to say is, well, the tech is supporting differentiation you know, which can also be gifted kids, right? So maybe your kid is getting harder math problems than the kid sitting next to them. And that can be easier to do when it's an app versus a worksheet. The flip side is your gifted kid may have hacked the whole system and may be busy writing their novel when everyone else is doing math. And maybe if you're like me, you're like, well, maybe that's okay some of the time. Maybe I'm, you know, but if they're going to get in trouble, if there's going to be a consequence, then maybe you don't want your kid spending the day hacking the system. Maybe you just want them to do the math problems. So it just depends. That's so funny. Yeah. Is hacking the system a good thing or a bad thing? And just so I'm clear, because this is new terminology for me, is this one-to-one. That just means each child has their own device. Yes. And in many districts, that also means it comes home, which also can present a whole new set of parenting challenges for families where even if you have a device at home, maybe you have a culture around it where kids have to ask permission to use it. When the school device comes home, some parents feel like, oh, it's a school device, so the school should make the rules. But in fact, parents still need to step up and mentor their kids around that. Many parents may need to take that device away at night. Just because the school sent home an iPad doesn't mean your kid needs 24-7 access to it. Oh my gosh, I, I this conversation could go in so many directions. And I feel this big responsibility to ask the right questions for my audience, because your expertise is so vast, and we could cover so many things. So I would love to just for a minute, go back to social lives and kids who, who may do better with social relationships on screens than they do in real time. What do you know about that in terms of the value of those relationships? This isn't a question I told you I was going to ask, but I'm really curious, you know, do you see 
value in online relationships. Do you think that those kinds of connections can actually help our kids learn social emotional skills? I think that they can, but I do think they need a lot of mentorship from adults. And this is where it gets tricky. So if your child, for example, has a strong interest, say they're really into Harry Potter and they join some online Harry Potter communities, and this may be a really good social outlet for them. I would also encourage them to see if there are any kid-appropriate face-to-face meetups that come with that community. And and that's I would never send my kid to a face-to-face meetup from someone they met on the internet without me, right? Especially, I mean, my son is nine, so for sure not in elementary school. But even as they get older, we need to teach kids that, yes, it's okay to connect with people with shared interests online, and that can be a good thing, but we also have to have a level of skepticism and an important sense of like, how much power does that person have in your life? Like if my child was getting into a romantic relationship with someone they met online, even if it was like, maybe they did fall in love on a Harry Potter site. And there are people married today who fell in love in situations like this. And, you know, many of us have partners that we met actually on the internet. So I don't want to demonize that, but I would be very cautious about someone getting really close to my kid, especially if my kid was very isolated in their day-to-day life at school, maybe if they didn't have a lot of friends in their own local community, I would just really want to be sure I knew what was going on. So that's where I always talk about mentoring over monitoring. But I would say with a kid with special needs, especially if, you know, you use the term differently wired, but especially if they seem like they're more vulnerable than a typical kid, or if they're more um, trusting, maybe if they if they have a history of maybe like having a lot of trust with people, sometimes inappropriately, then I would say some monitoring might be appropriate. And that's something I would disclose to them. I wouldn't go into covertly monitoring kids. There are very few cases where I feel like covertly monitoring makes sense. But I think letting your child know, hey, I have access to your communication and I'm not here to mess with you know what you're doing and I'm not here to not let you make friends online. But it's important that someone else is able to look at some of this in case there's ever a situation that worries us. And that's how I would frame it. And obviously I would, I would nuance that discussion a little differently depending on the age of the child and how much, how in depth those online relationships are. If your kid's just playing Minecraft or Roblox with other kids, you know, on a public server, I would just go with a very basic safety talk. If they're getting into more complex relationships or they're following someone on YouTube and commenting a lot on their channel and it's getting more personal, that's where I would you know, really want to be clear that they're staying safe in terms of their privacy and their, um, and their hearts. You know, you don't want your kid to lose that trust in the world because of someone trying to scam them or abuse them in some way. Mm. We'll be right back after this quick break. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary of Gotcha Day when we adopted our sweet Haskell, my cat who acts like a dog, plays fetch, and who I'm pretty sure has sensory processing differences. Are you getting a new pet soon? That means you'll need to think about getting the necessities like food, toys, a bed. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim, and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. There's so much more to maintaining a healthy gut microbiome than eating a balanced and healthy diet, travel, certain medications, and of course, something many of us have plenty of in our daily life, stress, are just some of the other factors that can totally throw off our systems. Enter Ritual. They created Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. 
Their supplement includes two of the world's most clinically studied probiotic strains to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gas, and diarrhea. I like Symbiotic Plus because it delivers all this goodness in one single nested minty delayed released capsule designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract. And because the capsules don't require refrigeration, I just keep them on my desk so that I get that helpful visual cue every morning. Plus, they're easy to bring with me when I travel. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Yeah, I mean, you talk about this idea of being tech savvy. And that's something I think a lot of us are, we believe our kids are way more tech savvy than we are. Then there's also this wisdom that we as adults bring to the relationship that we don't necessarily need to be tech savvy to be able to share that. Can you talk more about the distinction between those two things? Absolutely. So our lived experience helps us know wow, if I go down this road in this group text, it's going to lead to conflict and some difficult conversations. Or if I see a picture where I'm left out, I probably don't want to call the person and yell at them because that's that's not a good way for me to continue the friendship. So it's important for us to bring in that knowledge of previous experiences and our, our knowledge of, oh, where is this going to go? Whereas our kids may react much more impulsively two experiences, whether it's seeing a picture where they're left out or getting a text and feeling like they have to respond, even if it's in the middle of the night. So we can really counsel them to be patient, to think through their response, and also to let them think through how to repair if something goes wrong, if something goes awry in a conversation with someone else. Mm -hmm. And this is really where then that mentorship comes in. And I love that you use that word. You know, I think of us as parents often as And I refer to this with myself and Asher, you know, that a lot of what I do is coach him. You know, I see that as a big part of my role is to look for opportunities to help him strengthen areas of lagging skills and the executive functioning and all of those things. So can you talk more about how you see our role as parents as mentoring our kids? Absolutely. Some of it is just sharing our own experience. I mean, if I run into something in my own Twitter, Facebook, you know, world, that is uncomfortable or difficult, I might have a solution or maybe I didn't handle it well. So I can share that with my kid or hopefully I did handle it really well and I could share that story. But just the ways we curate our experience day to day, the way we might see something that we don't like or makes us uncomfortable, we could share that with our kids so that they know, oh, that's a behavior that might make someone uncomfortable. It's really great for our kids to see us in the world and to know that we make mistakes too. And oh, I, I responded too hastily to that email and now I have a lot of cleanup to do in that relationship or that work situation. And I I wish I'd taken the time to think it through or even talk in person instead. So I think letting them know that we've been there and also letting them know that it is genuinely challenging that we recognize. I mean, that's one of the great things about coaching is we're not saying, oh, this is so easy. Why don't you get it? We're saying, yeah, this is really challenging and, you know, baby steps. So it sounds like just talking out loud about our experience, modeling our own kind of navigating tricky online situations uh, or virtual relationships is important. But then I also just to talk about modeling a little more, you know, there's so many articles that I see being shared about, you know, what are our kids thinking when we're on our phones all the time? There was a video that went viral last year, I believe, trying to show the impact of a baby, you know, trying to get their parents' attention and their parent was, you know, looking down at their phone the whole time. So this is shifting gears a little bit, but what are your thoughts on that in terms of how we can best model responsible screen behavior to support our kids learning the same things? As the most connected person in my family, I can say that it's really important for me to listen and even put down, I'm much more connected with my laptop than I'm with my phone, even even 10 years into smartphone ownership or however long it's been, I'm, I'm still much more conversant with a laptop. And I will close it now when I talk to him and even put it away. Whereas years went by where I would just shut it to half mast and kind of look over it. Mm-hmm. And I recognized finally that that wasn't good enough and that he was just way too smart for that. And he knew I was kind of still dividing my attention in half. 
So for me, closing it is really good, good and clear and also making it really an important rule. I mean, these are things that many families do, but not having devices at the table. And we're in a small space, so sometimes the table is a workspace. But once it transforms into a meal space, we all put our devices away. And I think that's really important. And then also just recognizing what are the habits of mind that we're cultivating if every time we have a question about the world, we immediately Google the answer. You know, we're not really letting curiosity or other kinds of research methods bubble to the top. And we certainly all have search skills in the family to, to find the answer maybe on Google, but there may be other reasons to be patient and wait to find out this, the, the answer. Or we, we also don't want to undermine our own authority with our kid, right? If you want your kid to ask you the hard questions about God or sex or death and, or Santa Claus or whatever it is, you might not want them Googling it, right? And so being really clear with kids about what the what the big issues in, in life are and how maybe they should come to you first and not Alexa or Google. Oh, I love that. Well, let's talk about, you know, guidelines now. Again, jumping around, but you were talking about some of the habits you're trying to foster the rules that you have about no screens at the table, which I totally agree with. For so many differently wired kids, there is a strong draw to technology. Many of them are doing really cool work, you know, they're learning how to code or they're, you know, that's where their creativity comes out. And it can be tricky. I think a lot of parents find themselves weighing the value of screen time. And you know, if they're using it for good, or to further their intellectual pursuits, is that different than just mindlessly watching YouTube or, you know, someone playing Minecraft or I don't know, I'm just curious your thoughts on maybe this is a two pronged question, whether or not you think all screen media is created equal, and how we as parents can think about setting guidelines that respect our kids interests and pursuits, while also trying to find a balance there. Absolutely. Screen time is in some ways, an obsolete term. I mean, I think we all still are using it, but I would love to get people beyond it because it doesn't, it's not really descriptive. If I use Google, the Google lady tells me how to get somewhere. And then I use the Mark Bittman app to cook my dinner. You know, have I used up all my screen time and now I can't watch on Netflix? I mean, is that even a useful way to think about how I use technology to get me through the day? Right. So I really like Howard Gardner's term app enabled versus app dependent. And I think we all want to raise kids who sometimes are enabled by apps and, you know, whether it's my kid making a Lego animation or another kid using speech to text or, you know, kids who are coding and creating things and absolutely active and creative use is, is different than passive use. They're both good, right? When, when we're passively reading a book in some sense, that's passive use of technology, right? We're just taking it in. We want our kids to read, um, but we also want them to create and write and, and film and code and, and to take the interest that they're supporting on YouTube, like Minecraft and cooking into real life. Whereas, you know, where maybe they then actually play the game or mentor other kids about how to play the game. Or maybe if your kid is obsessed with cooking shows, then they're actually going to learn to cook something. I mean, we want our kids also to be able to navigate in the world and ultimately survive on their own. Mm -hmm. Right. And so all of these things have to be taken into account. Now, what that looks like in a family with, you know, one or more kids is complicated because I think a lot of people, you know, I speak at schools all the time and everyone's like, how many minutes or, you know, what age for this? Or, I mean, people really want these concrete guidelines and we have to look at how it supports our kid. I mean, for, for my family, we live in Chicago, which has pretty horrendous weather, weather in the winter. And so we absolutely have more screen time as a family in the winter. In the summer, if my kid asks for a second show, I'll be like, go outside. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. If it's you know super freezing cold, I might say, well, do something different with a screen or do something different in the house. Like maybe make some videos or maybe you want to do an interactive game, but maybe you can't watch another show if you've watched a show or two, right? So we're trying to change it up. So I, I think that responding to the individual situation, responding to what's needed, reminding my kid is very brain aware and very interested in how his brain works. And so I've remind, I'll, I can remind him, Hey, remember when you don't get exercise, you don't sleep as well. Or, you know, when you watch a couple of shows, it really detracts from your mood, remember? And so logic doesn't always work. And I'm not suggesting that parenting is some kind of democratic situation where my kid then makes the perfect decision because I've reminded him about how his brain works. <laughs> but if you have a kid who's interested in that and wants to be at their optimal functioning, you can certainly try that strategy. 
a lot of kids also need a little come down time from really intense interactions, especially video games. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, if you were driving a race car performing brain surgery, and then you immediately had to be at a dinner party without even so much as a commute home, you might have a hard time switching gears. And that's a bit what it's like to ask your child to come to dinner from playing an intense video game. And so talking to kids about building in that transition time, uh, whether it's breath work, a few jumps on a trampoline, jog around the block, most kids will need some transition time to move from certain kinds of intense tech engagements into dinner and with the family where you're going to expect them to interact and make eye contact Mm -hmm, and other things. mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. And of course, you know, I want to ask you, how much is too much? This is this comes up all the time. I was just doing a virtual book club group for my book Differently Wired. And we got down this road of talking about screen times. And that's the question, like everyone wants to know, do we need limits? Or is it okay? You know, some parents don't have limits. I'm just curious your professional opinion on that question. Some kids, for sure, well, all kids probably need some limits. Some kids need a lot more active role, you know, by us in placing those limits. And whether you use some external thing, you know, some people use you know, apps or products, you know, circle or other things to like actually shut their kids down at a certain time or shut off the family Wi-Fi at a certain time. I would say using tech to control tech has limits as a strategy, but it's certainly one way to do it and it can depersonalize it. And also I speak as a parent of one and I always want to be, have some humility. If I had seven, I might go for that tech solution. Mm -hmm. You know, if I had like a couple of sets of twins in my house or kids with more hacking ability. My kid's like a moderate level hacker, but he's not like a really intense hacker. Like that's not his thing. Like my kid is not spending hours trying to figure out our passwords. There are kids who will. If I had that kid, I might have a more sophisticated system. Mm -hmm. My system right now is that we have the password for everything. And in order to use it, he has to ask us to use it. We put in the password and then we're in, we have quite a lot of control that way. That's a very basic way of having control. It's not his device. It's my device. If I don't put the password in, it's a useless device for him. So that's that's a very simple thing to do. But again, you know, every everybody's situation varies. But I would say if you're using tech to control tech, I would also make sure you're still having the conversations. Because the thing is, even if you're using a filter or using tech to enforce your rules, that it's not giving you the information you want about your child's mood, about their sleep, about the quality of the interactions they're having. What you know, a lot of parents will say, Oh, should I let my child have this app? Well, if your child doesn't have friends, then who are they on Snapchat with? I mean, that's really the question, right? So I would really look at what are the relationships that are going to be growing or enforced or reinforced in this space. If your child's going to play Minecraft, it's very different to set them up to play with their cousins than to let them play on a public server with just anyone. And, you know, your seventh grader could be fine playing on a public server. But again, look at your child. Is this a kid who's made good decisions in the past about disclosure versus discretion? Is this a kid who might be kind of vulnerable? Um, Is this a kid who's going to pick up language and not know how to not use it? Uh, In that case, you may not want them playing on a public server because they are going to learn some words. If they haven't learned them already, they're going to learn them playing Mm -hmm. (laughs) games with kids on, on servers. Right. So you talked about, you know, that your son is one of the things you're doing is helping him remember, recognize that, oh, you know, I don't sleep as well when I don't get as much exercise or, you know, just and that he's interested in that. And Asher's similar in that way. I think that speaks to kind of what our bigger goals are for our kids in terms of the relationship we want to help them develop, the healthy relationship we want them to develop with regards to phones and computers and screens in general. So just taking a big zoom out, what are we working towards here? What should our goals as parents be for our kids to successfully launch and have a healthy relationship with technology? That is a great question. I mean, what we want is for kids to be able to pull back and look at, you know, wow, I had a week where I spent a lot of time playing video games and it, it kind of wrecked my sleep. But wow, it was that really fun that one time on the weekend where, you know, I did play, you know, a lot with my friends and I got really good. And so maybe I need to mostly play on the weekends. Like maybe school nights aren't so great for video games for me or, you know, to make those kinds of conclusions. And, you know, you see kids who are 10 and they're ready to make those great decisions. And then you meet young people who are 17 and they're really not making good decisions. So it, it's going to vary over the course of somebody's life. But I wish that I knew as much. I mean, my son's very keyed into the relationship between exercise and his mood in a way that it took me to my late 30s to get to. So I think I'd like to think we helped him. But honestly, he's just living in a world where there's more exercise literacy. And that's great. And so if we can get there with screens, if I can say, wow, my brain feels really fragmented, because instead of 
turning off the Wi-Fi during part of my workday so I could just write. I spent the entire day being interrupted by email and I never turned it off. I'm going to see if I feel less fragmented tomorrow if I take two hours after lunch when I don't have any calls on my calendar and just write with my email and social notifications turned off and see if I get more done, see if I feel more focused. And having those conversations again in front of our kids, letting them know that sometimes we have to take apps off our phone because they're a distraction, talking with them about you know all the research about distraction, it's really helpful because they can get there. Now, again, that doesn't mean that they're never going to stay up all night you know, mm-hmm, <laughs> doing mm-hmm. something we wish they wouldn't. And so it's also about are, are, do you have a kid who can then learn from those natural consequences? Because sometimes kids will do that once or twice and be kind of wrecked and say, okay, that really wasn't great. Other kids, it keeps happening and it, it really could be hard on their mental health or their grades. And we might have to take sterner measures and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to just take this device at night. This isn't working. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. Hey, are you a parent of a teenager? Are you feeling overwhelmed about how to be what they need while also holding limits and boundaries that keep them safe? Are you tired of conversations that negate how messy this season of parenting is? Well, I've got you. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am a positive discipline trainer, parent coach, and the host of the Joyful Courage podcast. Every week I come to you with an interview, digging into tough topics with experts I trust and solo shows that go deep into the personal growth and mindset needed to raise teens in a way that grows them into confident, capable young people. I am not afraid of getting real about the intersection of conscious parenting and the teen years, while also bringing in vulnerability, humor, and lightness. I'm walking the path with you and honored to serve. Listen to Joyful Courage on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. So for parents listening, I feel like, you know, this is a hard question to answer, but even just a couple of um, strategies, like, or, or maybe kind of your top tip for parents, you know, I love what you just said. It seems like it's really just understanding and really getting to know who your child is, how they relate to technology, and being very, very individualized, like there's no one size fits all solution, but you have kind of one strategy or word of advice for parents who are maybe feeling overwhelmed. Maybe they feel like their kids have developed habits that they wish they could put the brakes on. And maybe they feel like that's not possible. Like, how do they begin to develop this more positive mentorship role to support their child? Well, I would say try to play what they play at least a little. If your kid is really into something, have them teach it to you. Not that you ever want to get in there to like one up your kid. I mean, let them be better at Minecraft or Fortnite than you, please. You know, right. You have other things to do, surely. But know enough about it to understand what it is. If you're curious, if you even want to let your kid dive into something like a lot of parents aren't sure about Fortnite, 
Uh, and that's a, a valid question, right? It's a shooter game. It's, you know, it might, it's not for my nine-year-old, right? It might be for your 15-year-old. It just really depends. But you want to look at diving into some information about it, but as, as much as possible, stay curious about what your kids are into and think about what they're getting out of it. Why would your kid love Instagram? Maybe it's all about the filters. If your six-year-old asks for Instagram, it's probably not because that's where her friends are or because she wants to communicate with her friends. She probably saw pictures with a cool filter. Well, maybe you could let her play with Photoshop or one of the sort of cheap alternatives mm -hmm. to Photoshop, right? Maybe she just wants to, you know, mess around with images. So the more we know about what our kids are into, the more we can actually find age-appropriate ways to support those interests. And Staying curious is a really good idea. Observing the way our kids do talk to their friends about these things, um, making sure that our kids aren't getting feeling too much pressure to just have an app or a specific piece of technology, a specific kind of phone, just because that's what the peers have. So that, I mean, you're homeschooling, but certainly in school, like having a visible technology is a big thing. Like walking around with a certain phone in many communities is a big deal. So it's, very similar to having a certain kind of sneaker or jeans in, in that way, but it's a much more functional piece of equipment, right? So we, we want to be really cautious about what, you know, getting your kid a phone is very different than getting them a pair of jeans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It opens up a lot more possibilities for them. So I feel like I'm, I'm not, I want to come back to what you initially said is stay curious and also don't be in a rush. If your kid asks you for a piece of tech or an app, you don't have to say yes or no right away. You can say, let me think about it and do your own research. Talk to other parents who have kids who are your kid's age or older and see what their experience is. You know, if, if you're contemplating a certain new step, you can ask parents of kids, you know, and say, well, I'm thinking of doing this. What, what's come up for you guys? What should I look out for? Do you regret it? <laughs> you mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. So we, we have to make sure our kids don't expect that automatic green light right away. And I think I'll think about it and giving, giving them a little, giving yourself a little time to research it is really helpful. Yeah. I found when I've used that, or my husband is a gamer and but I always say I need it. Your dad needs to explore this and we need to discuss it. And I'd say half the time he ends up losing interest and in moving on anyway, before we even get back to him. So I, I like taking the time and not rushing into something. Exactly. I think that's a good strategy for all of those reasons. And then, you know, if your kid's still asking week upon week, well, then maybe this is something that they're really interested in. And that, again, doesn't mean you have to say yes, but it's certainly an interesting sign. Just like, you know, if your kid wanted to take up a certain martial art or, you know, was really interested in, you know, something kind of esoteric and you were about to spend a lot of money to help them pursue that or, you know, a lot of time, it'd be worth kind of seeing, in, are they still interested in two weeks, right? That That's a fine strategy for mm -hmm. many things with parenting. For many things in life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I asked myself that too, you know, am I still, when I, when I thought about writing screenwise, I was like, well, let me see if I still want to do this in a month. Let me just write a bunch of things. And then months went by and I was writing more and more. And I thought, yes, I do want to do this, but it's worth checking that before you commit to a big yeah. project as an adult as well. That's so true. It's so true. Well, you mentioned screenwise. So can you tell us um, where people can reach you and, and learn more about your work and about your book? Absolutely. So ScreenWise is available anywhere you can buy books and it's come out in a couple of other languages as well. So in the US, all the online retailers and bookstores should have it and same thing, you know, elsewhere and your library too. And my website is raisingdigitalnatives.com and that's where I blog and where you can also sign up for my list. And I send about once a month, a new post out to people with new information. So I've been writing a lot this summer about YouTube and advising people on what to do if their kid wants to start a channel, how to manage the YouTube things kids watch. And those, those are the kinds of things I like to share with parents or kind of big ideas about friendship and kids in the digital age. Uh, and it's also a place where people sometimes send me questions that then lead to things that I write, which I really appreciate. So I'm always grateful if someone sends me a question that maybe sends me down the road of writing a new article or adding something to my talks. Oh, that's great. Well, super interesting. Again, there's so many things we could talk about, but I, I appreciate all the wisdom that you shared today. And I encourage listeners to definitely check out Devorah's website and her book, ScreenWise, which I read and really enjoyed. And thank you again for stopping by today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I love what you're doing with Differently Wired and with the podcast. And I think there's just so much that's exciting and fun. So I guess that's the other thing I want to leave parents with is 
you could have a lot of fun making a YouTube cooking channel with your kid or, you know, coding with your kids. So don't discount the fun factor. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 127. Because the audience for this podcast has grown substantially in the past few months, I wanted to share with you one of the free resources I offer on Tilt Parenting in case you're new to Tilt or you haven't had a chance to poke around on the website. So far, nearly 1,500 parents have participated in the Differently Wired 7-Day Challenge. This is a virtual challenge whereby every day for 7 days, You'll get a short one to three minute video delivered to your inbox featuring a practical shift you can make in your world to help you have a more positive and optimistic experience in parenting your unique kiddo. You'll also be invited to join a private Facebook group with other parents who have participated or currently are participating in the challenge. And I've heard from parents that the challenge has made an immediate difference in their day-to-day life, which is fantastic because that is exactly why I created it. So I would love for you to join in. It won't add more to your plate, I promise. Rather, it's going to give you some food for thought as you go about your daily life. So to get started, just sign up at tiltparenting.com slash seven day. And a quick reminder, if you haven't had a chance to check out my new book, Differently Wired, and you want to see if it's for you, don't forget you can download the first chapter and table of contents at tiltparenting.com slash book. And if you have read it, and like what you read, I would be grateful if you would consider leaving a review on Amazon. And if you have an account on Goodreads, go ahead and leave one there too. Those reviews mean more visibility for the book. And I want to make sure the people who would benefit from its message can easily find it. Lastly, I couldn't end a podcast without my weekly reminder to leave a rating or a review or both for this show on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for considering doing that. That really helps our podcast stay highly visible in a world of thousands and thousands of podcasts and more popping on every day. So thanks so much. And thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy.